Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Jared McChrystal comes from Derry, Northern Ireland. He studied at the Royal Northern College of Music, Manchester, and later at the Guildhall School, London, and with Frederick Hemke at Northwestern University in Chicago. Jared has performed in over 35 countries, recorded numerous albums, and worked with orchestras including Philharmonia, BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, BBC Concert Orchestra, National Symphony of Ireland, Stuttgart Starts Orchestra, and the Orchestra of San Francisco Ballet. Jared was Artistic Director of the British Saxophone Congress in London and has served as an adjudicator at the 5th Adolf Sax International Saxophone Competition in Dinan, Belgium. Jared is Professor of Saxophone at Trinity Laban Conservatoire, London. Please welcome my guest today, Irish saxophonist Jared McChrystal. I would love to know how you got started playing the saxophone. It was really weird. Um, it's an accident, um, like a lot of my career. And um, I was a clarinet player. I was a really serious clarinet player. And I was auditioning for the Royal Northern College of Music. And I had set my heart in going there. Um, it's a bit tricky, really, because where I grew up in, in Ireland, in Derry, um, I don't think anyone had ever been to music college. So no one really knew what it was. Uh, and, and weirdly, um, what had helped me is that there were, there were three really good clarinet players um, uh, who I grew up with, and we all sort of competed against each other. So we were pushing each other, not realizing that we were any good. And in my class at school who did music, out of the, the four boys who did um, A-level music, three of them went to conservatoires, which it was on her. I think, I think it's ever happened uh, since then. But um, so my clarinet playing was, was okay, and I was a really serious player, and that was what I was going to do. But my piano playing was awful, and I needed a second study for the RNCM. And um, so I was 17 and it was September time. And in those days, the auditions were in March. So it was going to be March of you know six months later when I was 18. And um, I went up to the local wind orchestra. And the thing is that the, the other clarinet player was younger than me. And he was, he was first clarinet. So he was always, I was always his sort of number two. And um, that would be the same. So even in school, I didn't play first clarinet. Uh, everywhere I always played second clarinet and um, so it was which is kind of fine but I always wanted sort of to play the tune there's always that soloist in me Um, and my whole childhood you know I I played second clarinet and uh, and anyway the 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 conductor of the wind band he said um, oh Brendan Bradley's gone off to Queen's University and we need now someone to play saxophone and I can still remember that moment it's like um Strangely, the first time I ever heard a saxophone was the guy who played first clarinet. Um, he uh, he got to play saxophone in Louisiana uh, in the orchestra, and he he sat next to me uh, playing the saxophone. I went, 
Uh, oh, I kind of like the sound of that. It sounds a bit different to the clarinet. It sounds kind of cool. So my hand went straight up, as actually did his and the principal flute, and all three of us put our hands up. And I think I got it because I was the property. I mean, I've told these guys this story afterwards, and they've always laughed and said, no, that didn't happen. But it did happen that I believe the conductor thought, well, principal clarinet, principal flute, they need to stay where they are. But Jared, he's more dispensable because he's only on number two. So, so I got the saxophone. And um, so three weeks later, I came back to a rehearsal. And I remember we were playing Percy Granger, Shepherd's Hay and stuff like that. And um, there's a couple of sax solos on that. And when I started playing, the tenor player turned around and he went, how do you do vibrato? And I said, I don't know. And I didn't realize, but I was playing and I was using vibrato. I'd self-taught. Um, and that's how I started on the saxophone. I played pop music. Um, I grew up with uh, all girls, five sisters, no brothers. And, um, and, and for love and her money, couldn't get a girlfriend. So it was, I think I was probably stalking people. And I, I'd sort of chat to people, but I could never, ever have the, the courage to ask somebody out. And then I'd go back feeling really sad for myself. And I'd play my saxophone along with my dad's record player. So I used to play like Lionel Richie's Truly, Baker Street, Every sax. It was a great time actually because the nineteen. This is nineteen early nineteen eighties, and like there were so many um, pop, great pop tunes around there that all had the saxophone. Uh, Super Trump were out at that time, and um, so I learned loads, loads of John Halliwell's uh, solos, and um, all of that type of thing. So I went to the Royal Northern in the March. I, I took the saxophone along, and I learned the Swan by Sansons off my dad's record player. I don't think I learned the whole thing because I think the needle stuck. So I went and played the clarinet and I played like Poulonk and I played um, Stravinsky. And um, and then on the saxophone, I, I busked the swan and um, I didn't think too much more of it. And then later they offered me, offered me joint for a study. And apparently after my audition, they walked out and were really ex- they, they were they were pleased about the clarinet playing, but they were really excited about the saxophone. And when I went to the RNCM over the next four years, they gently pushed me towards the saxophone, and um, and I think I, I started really taking it seriously um, in about my third year. And up until then, I didn't take it seriously. I mean, I had a whole summer where it sat in its case, and um, I had I had borrowed a Yamaha. So I went to music college with a borrowed Yamaha you know, the cheapest Yamaha you can get a student model. And I had a Brillhart mouse piece with a chip out of it. Um, I think eventually in my second year, someone gave me a C-star. And that's that was as, as, as scientific as I got. Um, I had an experience in my third year at music college, which I, where, when I first picked up a soprano saxophone. And um, I sort of could just play it. Um, I sort of knew what to do with it. So I, I, I never really had any lessons on it. And um, there was this this piece, um, it was called The Winds of Nagel, and it was conducted by Clark Rondell from uh, Northwestern University, who's still there at the RNCM. And uh, it had this beautiful soprano saxophone solo, and I played it. And afterwards, some people come up to me, and they were crying. And I went, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? And it, it just, it was me, a sound. And, of course, you know, having never been able to get a girlfriend, I was very good at playing sad music. And, um, and it, I, I, you know, seriously, it's defined my whole career. I'm so glad 
I'm so glad I didn't score when I was younger because because I mightn't have had any career. And um, so anyway, whenever I was um, at the, at the RNCM, that just sort of that day, I suddenly realised, you know, you've got something here. You can affect how people respond. And um, and Clark suggested me to go to Northwestern. He said, you know, um, they've got one of the best teachers in the world, Brad Hemke. And I went, all right. And just so I thought I'll do that. And then uh, in my fourth year, uh, John Harrell came to the RNCM and he uh, um, he heard me play and he said, you should come to the Guildhall. So I ended up doing both. I went to the Guildhall after that uh, on saxophone uh, and clarinet. And then I went to Fred as a, a master's student. So it was kind of a strange start. All, all, all thanks to Brendan Bradley going to university. And we're still in touch to this day. He's followed my career. You know, I, I played the clarinet first before getting onto the saxophone as well. Did you? But I didn't play second clarinet. I played fifth clarinet. Ah! <laughs> I mean, any, any lower than that and you're fall off the stage. So. <laughs> no, seriously, after one year, they begged me to play the saxophone because I was so bad at the clarinet. <laughs> so you started, you started playing the saxophone duty popular demand. Then. <laughs> yeah, they bought this. I mean, the school I went to, they actually went out and bought a new saxophone just so I'd get off the clarinet. <laughs> That is the way to do it. That is a great, I'm going to give that career advice to students. I mean, that's, that's the secret to getting a free instrument. <laughs> but it's funny we talk about free instruments because like where I grew up, uh, I mean, this is during the troubles in Northern Ireland. So Derry was a really tough place to grow up in, but yet we had this amazing education system. And in the midst of all of this, they had this system where, um, it was like a five or a year and you would get free instruments. And when I said free instruments, I had a pair of Buffet Prestige. Uh, no, they were Buffet R13s, uh, a double set A and B flat because I was in the orchestra. Um, and they allowed me to keep those instruments when I went to music college until I got my own. So I was able to go to music college with two clarinets and a saxophone that the local education authority loaned me. Um, and that was for three years and, and then I gave them back once I'd been able to afford to get my own instruments. And um, so it's really, it was an amazing kind of system. And uh, I'm, they still kind of got it. They've still managed to hang on to it. So, yeah, it's incredible. I'm very grateful to them. The weird thing is, you know, I I, um, I failed, you know, talking about the clarinet. I, I started actually in a local wind band, a marching band. And I started actually on the trumpet. My dad got, got me a trumpet and he was in the band. And... I played second trumpet. You know, when you're going, I thought I can't spend my life going like this. I said, there has to be something more to life. They went, and true and trusty. And I heard all the clarinets flying about. And I said, well, I quite fancy being over there. So I said to my dad, I wanted a clarinet. At school, I'd failed the oral test that decided if you had any talent or not. So they said, you can't have an instrument. So initially I failed that test for the first couple of years. I, I, I couldn't get an instrument. And one night my dad came back from the band rehearsal and gave me a clarinet and that got that started. Um, and I'm still in touch with my first teacher. I, I think our, our teachers are really important. I, I'm very grateful to them all. You know, they have such an influence on our, our careers, um, you know, both positively and negatively. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of funny. I was, I was going to ask about your teachers because you obviously saw a range of teaching styles as you went through, as a, first as a beginner and then at a high level doing masters in America. I mean, what was the big difference when you went to learn with Hempke 
compared to what you'd had before? I realized that I knew virtually nothing. And I thought I was seriously, I'd gone to Fred and I was really successful. I had this kind of purple patch where um, I had never won a competition and then I needed to win. I mean, you know, Northwestern, um, you know, it's a private university. And um, so Northwestern, I had to find a, a way of funding it. So when I went to Northwestern, I won this competition. The first thing I ever won, um, it was worth a lot of money in Ireland called Lombard and Ulster Foundation. And, um, and it virtually funded like my whole year. Um, and it was on TV. And then the next week I was in the final of the, um, the win final of the Royal Overseas League. And I actually didn't care about that competition because I'd already done what I needed to do. And I just turned up not thinking about it. And I won. And, um, I mean, I, I didn't win the final and because I wasn't really, it sounds awful. I wasn't really that bothered. I changed program. I changed pianist, um, as well in between the, um, the, the, the win final and the main final and just a different repertoire. Um, so it was really amazing kind of, you know, ex- experience. Um, because when I went to Fred, I'd won all these competitions and I thought I was going to be completed as a saxophone player. I said, right, it's going really well. And I'm going to go to Fred and be finished off. And when I came out, I, I thought, oh, I'm just starting. It was such a sort of, um, it's, I think it's that Marcin Mule thing about Fred, really. Um, because it's from the ground up. It's everything. It's not just your scales and all of that. It's the, the complete um, experience. And um, so it was really interesting from that point of view. But you see, I think that that is kind of normal because, you know, when I've been at the RNCM, um, I've been sort of really focused on the clarinet. So I've been, I have been doing the saxophone as well. And, um, but I think my focus had been in the, the sax, the, the clarinet, sorry. And when I went to the Guildhall, uh, although I had a great time studying with John Harlan things, I had a, ba- a bad accident. Uh, I had a really bad crash on a bike. So I was out for a whole term injured. And um, so I, I didn't really get the full ex- experience. And, and, and I was also doing clarinet with Jack Brimer then. So um, so I was kind of getting going. Um, and I think that's what happened is that when I went to Fred, I had a whole year just to focus solely on the saxophone. Northwestern insisted that I, I, I they offered me a joint place. I could have done clarinet. I think it was Robert Marsalis. Um, but they, they said, you do clarinet or the saxophone, you have to choose. And I went, okay, I'll give the saxophone a crack and see what happens. And it was literally, I mean, that's been my career. I've never really been, I think I, perhaps I could have been a bit more focused, <laughs> but I've never taken life too seriously. So I, um, you know, so being really focused and driven, um, it, it's, it, I do it in bits <laughs> and then I chill out for a bit. So, um, so, so would you describe your career as fairly organic then? It's not a, been a planned uh, stage by stage. Yeah, it's been a really long, it's been a beautiful zigzag. <laughs> I think my career has been, um, uh, it, my life is, you know, people are much more important um, to me. So the music's been a sort of um, soundtrack to my life, really. It's it's everything I've done has always been as, as a, a, a direct result of my experiences. So sometimes albums and things, they've been because I needed to do it because of relationships or something like that. Um and um, so, yeah, organic is the absolute word. It's 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 just kind of just being what I've wanted to do. I, I've often wondered if I've been a bit in, 
indulgent. And I thought, well, it's been all right. It's been a good laugh. So why not? So you could describe music as uh, an excuse to meet different people. Yeah. I mean, the, the relationships and the people have been the most important bit for me. And um, I mean, I love, and, and I mean, the thing I love about the saxophone, it's not the performing, it's just sitting down and playing it. Um, you see, because you see, whenever I began, I began in a little bedroom in Derry growing up in the, the 1980s, um, sitting playing along with a, a record player, feeling a bit sorry for myself, you know, so that sort of experience of me, I didn't realize, but that experience of me sitting with an instrument and being, and being initially self-taught, it meant, it meant that the saxophone taught me. You know, so I've always believed there's only two ways of playing the saxophone. One's fear and force, and the other is feel and faith. You know, when you just have to decide which one it's going to be. And when we study it, I think we, we, we intellectualize the saxophone and we start telling it what to do. And I think that's when it sometimes goes horribly wrong because we add, you know, when you think about something, we, we instantly add tension. You know, so and the, the key is not to think. That's been, <laughs> I say, Mr. Jude, stop thinking. Feel, forget to think. You know that's that's why it's, your brain's getting in the way, and um, and I think that's that's really how I've I've, I've put the instrument and, and kind of my career has always just been what feels right, um, and that's why it's, it's been in so many sort of different directions. Really, would you say the experience of studying overseas, first of all, was it important to you in terms of your development, and would it be something that you recommend to other musicians? It was a life experience. I mean, Chicago, I mean, <clears throat> I was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I've always been a big fan as well, Gene Russo. Um, I met Gene as well. Uh, actually, Gene was the first sort of, you know, big saxophone player I heard. I remember he played Denisov Machinsky. I came to the RNCM and I, I couldn't speak afterwards. I didn't realize what a, a saxophone could do. Actually, his, his recording, obviously, remember the Dubois recording that he did? Um, it's the first thing I ever heard. And uh, I went, oh, can play fast as well now because <laughs> I, I don't I mean at that stage I, I thought all I could do was play like Diana Ross and and, <laughs> and Baker Street I went oh it can do a bit more as well and I went oh that's interesting um so um yeah so it was kind of interesting experience I've actually show my age I've just completely forgot the question <laughs> <laughs> you know I was thinking about, I was thinking about Baker Street before you I'm surprised you weren't tempted to play that for your audition piece when you first went to study i've played it so many times i've played it so many times that piece and um yeah i like playing ba i still play baker street i still one of my favorite things that I, I do a saxo karaoke thing i do like sort of i've done corporate stuff um I've, I've played it in shopping centers like i was in uh i think i did a thing in in portugal draw pedro's amazing festival in palmella i did a concerto there couple of years ago and the day before i was in a shopping center in Derry playing baker street to a crowd of about 100 people with with a pa with a backing track and i was having the time of my life and i love the fact that i can play stevie wonder and all of that and then the next day i might be playing cuckoo or or the celtic or whatever you know i kind of like the kind of contrast between the two things now you've been playing for decades really How, could you describe to me i, I have yeah it's crazy, isn't it? It sneaks up on you. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. Does that mean I have to grow up now? Oh, damn. No, no, that's not to go there. Could you describe the way that you practice now compared to how you practiced when you were first learning the instrument? I wish um, <laughs> what I know now, I knew, I, I knew then because, well, as you can tell, it was completely unstructured. 
And um, I have a, I have very simple ways of of, of uh, practicing that, and it's how I teach. Um, the first thing is Joe Allard's Arcs of Learning. Joe Allard's like I think he's my hero. I've lots of heroes, but Joe is like up there as I think just one of probably one of the biggest influences. Even though I never had the pleasure of meeting him, and I, I met a guy who told me a story about Joe Allard. He said that Joe talked about two arcs of learning. One is you get two arcs of learning. One is where you want to be, and the other is where you are. And if you don't practice where you are, you will never get better. And I realized that in between those two arcs is another one, which is the arc of where you think you are. And that's where we practice something where we think we can play it. And that's the classic one when you walk into a lesson and all of a sudden the thing that you could play perfectly five minutes ago falls apart. And that's where you've discovered that you've been practicing where you, you think you are. And so, the, so what I do is that I have musical traffic lights, red, amber, and green. I put a metronome on, and then I have another thing which is called DARN, Dynamics, Articulation, Rhythm, and Notes. And I, I pick whatever I'm practicing, and I break it into those four components. And, of course, the tuning is a given. You have to always play in tune. So that's kind of always in the background. Um, so I'll just pick the notes, put on a metronome, and I'll start playing. And if I can't play it perfectly and I'm in the green, i.e. green, I, my mind starts wandering and I start thinking about, you know, what I'm going to cook tonight. If I'm not in that position, then I'm playing it too fast. And the amber is where it's a bit tricky to play. And the red is, of course, you should stop. You shouldn't play that fast. Um, and, and really the key with my practice is, is, is getting rid of your ego. I think the ego is a terrible um, problem that it stops us being the musicians we, we can be. Um, you know, it's not a moral thing. It's just It just gets in the way. Um, and it's because our insecurities are all part of our ego as well. So for me, I try and put my ego in the bin. It's quite hard. It's a big bin. It's all right. And, um, as I walk in and I sit down and I start practicing and until I can just play, I I remember, I remember when I first learned the Melbourne, um, I remember just being on holiday, um, and, um, I sit and practicing and I was, I was daydreaming playing it, playing it at about half speed. I think you, it's the only speed you can daydream playing the Melbourne at. <laughs> and, um, and, and I wasn't thinking about it. My fingers were just moving. And I went, that's now in the green. And then it's only at that point do I add in the rhythm. And then you, and, and as soon as you add in the rhythm, you make a mistake because maybe it's a bloke of multitasking. I'm not sure. Um, and then it's articulation and, which is the, that's the bit we leave out actually. And it's the humanity of the music. So it's, it's hugely important. And then of course the dynamics, that's the expression, the soul of the music. And as soon as we put in dynamics, then I realize I have to start again. Cause if you've got something really passionate, then you use instantly, we use more pressure. I've tried it. I mean, how do you play really, really passionately in forte and not use extra pressure in your hands because we, we, we can't help but project the emotion of the music onto our, our body, onto our fingers. Um, and um, so once I've done that, um, and then I can play it like that, I've hit 50%. I feel really happy because I'm halfway there. And I tend not to make it to the tempo. Um, actually, when I first played the Melbourne, I tried this experiment out that worked really well in that I didn't learn it faster than 75%. So when I, I did it first, I think, in, in NASA in America. And um, 
when I hit 75%, I reckoned that adrenaline would take me over the line. I think it's a bit like a, a marathon, you know, you know, like a marathon, you sort of train to, you know, 22, 23 mile, knowing that, that the last three mile you're just do with your, your, your spirit and things. Um, and it worked. It was a really interesting ex- experiment. I've gone the other way now, actually, um, because the great thing about digitizing music is that you, I've got these little sort of loops things that I play with. Um, and I now practice at 100 and, 110% just in case the orchestra or whatever start rushing. Um, and yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the key for me, the key for me is control of, of uh, grounding ourselves and control of rhythm. It's not about practicing. It's all, all in your head. You know, um, most saxophone players, you know, I'm always astonished you know, by the technical level. Like I'm just about to do the, the competition in, in Slovenia soon, you know, and it's like, you know, we've both been on the adult sax uh, competition jury, you know, and it's, it's, it's humbling. I mean, you know, I just, it was just such an incredible experience. I felt so proud to be a saxophone player doing that competition because, you know, the, the level that, that these guys are, are, are at at such a young age, it's just mind blowing what they've, they've already managed to accomplish and um, and often what separates them is just the ones on the day who can relax and just play, you know, and not think. And um, so it's it's my practice is is much more methodical. And I think when I was younger, I was just more indulgent. I just I, I got away with really dodgy technique. I mean, I won when I won the overseas league. My um, the pianist who played for me in the final, she said, you know, you shouldn't have won that competition because technically the clarinet player. Uh, I won was much better. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. Technically, she was miles better. And it, but I won by a unanimous uh, jury because I was able to perform. And I realized for many years I was pulling the wool over listeners' eyes because my musical intentions were so strong that that people didn't hear the mistakes. But then after a while, I started noticing them and it just really bothered me. And I thought, well, if I can nail all these technical bits, then I can sort of you know, be more fuller as a musician. And that made a massive difference because you start realizing that, you know, you, you don't, you, you can't play everything. I mean, for me, there's lots of bits of the repertoire. And I thought, well, if I wanted to play that piece, that might take me a year. And I'm not actually that crazy on it. So I'm not going to spend a year in my life. And I can't mention the piece because it's so famous, but I've been asked to record it twice. And I might do it later on, but I just was never really into it. I didn't really it didn't really sort of appeal to me. So I've never played it, you know, and there's some composers I've never played any of their music because I think it's great, but other people can play it. It just doesn't, I, I don't get it. You know what I mean? It doesn't get, it doesn't sort of turn me on. So I, and unless I'm actually, someone says, I need you to play this piece. Um, and I've decided that I just want to play things I, I believe in because the music's so demanding nowadays that if you want to play something, if I'm going to give a year of my life, then it has to be something I believe in. One thing I've noticed with your programming is, first of all, when you choose a piece, it seems to be a very conscious choice that you choose this piece for a reason. And once you've learned it, you play it many, many, many times. And I've seen other people have a different approach where they'll have a new piece, they let it go, they have a new piece, let it go. They're constantly learning new music. Could you describe perhaps how you've come about that idea of touring pieces of music, of playing them over and over, of memorizing them, of really integrating them into your performance? Well, 
I suppose the thing is that there, <clears throat> there are a lot of pieces I've played once. Um, lots of the saxophone repertoire I've done once. Um, I've only, I think I've done the France five exotic dances once. I think they're great. I did them once. I've done lighter sauces once. Um, and I think in the end that some of the, a lot of the pieces, they, I enjoy playing them. And after the performance, um, I was happy with it. So I didn't play it again. There was a piece by Ian Wilson called drive. Um, and I missed the top F sharp in front of my students at a concert. And for the next year, anytime I walked into the room, um, one of them would play a top F sharp and they would all laugh. I thought, oh, thanks guys. So they reminded me of that note. Um, so I was doing this thing at the Guildhall and I played that piece and I didn't miss the top F sharp. I played it fine and I haven't played it since. It was kind of done that. And then I'll move on to the next thing. It's a lovely piece, but I think the reason why I keep playing some other pieces, um, you know, Cuckoo's a classic example is that it's just so hard. I kind of, I mean, I love playing. It's great fun. Um, but, but I think there's things where, because it's still a challenge. So, you know, I don't want to waste my time with things that are uh, easy to play. You know, I don't want to flatline as a performer. So there are some pieces that are just so lovely to play. Bots Aria, Rudy Vidoff, Deep Purple, uh, that I play because they're so enjoyable. But most pieces, um, there'll be things about it that are challenging. And uh, Melbourne is a great challenge to play. And um, and I like pieces where it's virtually impossible to get through a performance without dropping a note, you know. And I kind of like to see how how close you can get, you know. That I kind of like that that kind of challenge. And as we see, for me, there are certain pieces, especially technical ones, because I had no technique. I self taught, so I had virtually zero technique. Um, so you know, when I was graduated from the RNCM, I played pretty well, but I was kind of just kind of getting around it, and you know, kind of getting around Creston, but. You know, there was always those key bars that just weren't there. So, um, you know, that's that's a piece that I, I, I love. Um, but, you know, once again, once you get past that, then you, so you do move on to other things. So, yeah, that's kind of why I would keep at something, you know, like that, because there's still a challenge in it. And there's the other thing, of course, is is a bit about getting new music out there. You know, I, I sometimes have a mission about something that I think is really important. Um, I mean, what I love about Cuckoo is that it's so human. I mean, you know, I've played it in so many, you know, so we're, I'm now 100 plus performances. And uh, I love the fact that you can play a piece that is contemporary. It's got slap tongue, circular breathing, all the party tricks, you know. And yet it doesn't, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, you can always, the great thing about Cuckoo, it doesn't sound like a fire in a pet shop because it's about a chicken, you know. And there, and what you may not know anything about the saxophone. Um, incidentally, I once played that at a, at a major music sort of uh, uh, series, concert series, and afterwards the, the chairman came and said, that must be the single most difficult piece of music we have ever had performed at our series. And they've had string quartets and everything there. And I said, yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> but the fact that it's about a chicken, then everyone gets it, you know, as long as you can slap tongue, of course. And, um, and once you get that, then it's, it's, that's the humanity of the piece, even though it's about a chicken. So, and it's a human story. Of course, Cuckoo is a human story, isn't it? You know, so <laughs> dancing and death and things, you know. So, um, so I think uh, that's kind of really important. We were first in contact many years ago. You wrote to me one day. I was living in Canada at the time, working, working at the Banff Centre, and you wrote to me desperate to get 
the music for Black and Blue because you had, you had a sudden recording or something came up suddenly. You didn't have the part with you. You wrote to me, could I get it to you? And, and that started off a dialogue. And, and as that sort of dialogue continued over the years and I saw you start to play really widely, you were playing all over the place, playing my music, which was fantastic for me. But that's one of the draw cards that I like as a composer is to write music that will actually get played and will be played by someone who can play very widely because that is what can bring a piece to life. Uh, a first performance of a piece is not always the best performance. It often needs many goes. And I, I like that about your development of your career is that you can take a piece of music and then continue to play it for years. And each performance is going to be a little different, a little more, I think, have a little more understanding to it. And it evolves. And I think that's a really important part of music, that it's not just a museum that we go and see the uh, one type of performance, but we see music evolve over time. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, I always think the the first performance, it's it's very special. There's an energy about a first performance, a premiere of anything, but it's just an introduction. It's just a, you have to, it's a kind of getting it out of the way. Um, I always think the first performance for me is, is that it's only until you do the premiere is then when you, fi- that's when you find out what you really have to do with the piece. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I know of conductors, for example, who have, who've, recorded all the Beethoven symphonies and they they've they've done it three times in their career you know because they've come back to it and they've just seen it from so many different angles and um and I, and I like I like the fact that I can go back to pieces and I see different elements um and uh it's interesting as well because we play them at such different speeds you know generally we play um <clears throat> them faster and what I like is then when you get it, you start then getting to a stage where then you start playing it slower again. And that's when it becomes really interesting, you know, and it's something saxophone players don't do enough really is, is, is play slowly enough, you know, because I think we've got to a level where we can just do such amazing things. And I think we sometimes forgot that forgotten that people have to, normal people have to listen to it. And, um, <clears throat> At times, it can be a disconnection. We've got a World Congress coming up, so it's always really fascinating. Um, I'm really aware of the fact that the classical saxophone is in danger of being a kind of, um, well, it's something that's become a very academic thing. You know, it's very widely taught at conservatoires and universities and all of that. And and there's, there's lots of <clears throat> these kind of symposiums and conferences and all of those types of things. And it's very easy to spin around all of these. Um, and of course, then you're dealing with a really, really high knowledge base. You know, you don't have to explain everything. Everyone knows what's going on so that you can start then at a really, really high level of things. And what I find is I like sort of just taking, you know, I like playing those things, you know, just just to get over the, it's a, it's a kind of leveler, isn't it? It's always humbling playing in front of fellow sax players and it, it keeps us sharp. I think it's really important, you know. And um, I, I had a, I went out, I, I'm mates with Arno, Arno Borkamp, and he's playing at the World Congress. And we're just talking about it, you know, and just talking about how much practice you have to put in when you play at a World Congress because uh, any of these major saxophone events is that 
um, you just have to make sure that you're really on top of your game when you when you play this because everyone in the audience is going to be a saxophone player and that's really healthy. But it's only a tiny bit of what our career should be because the bit that really, the, the other bit that really matters is just people, the general public, what we're saying to them and, and what we're doing for the saxophone. Um, that's the bit that, that's hugely important because that's a bit that is a bigger picture of getting the saxophone into the orchestra and getting it programmed into major concert series and getting promoters to see the instrument as something that is equally viable to a violin and not just some kind of novelty. So that's that bit's really, really important. And I think, you know, if we play too fast, you know, some of the stuff we play is so fast, it just flies over people's heads. And they just, they hear this blur, blur of notes. I mean, some, I've heard performances of the Desenclo where you cannot actually hear the harmonic changes of the cadenza. And I kind of thought, well, what's the point of that? You know, because the, 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 the beauty of the Desenclo cadenza are the harmonic changes and the melodic side of it. And, um, you know, the faster, higher, louder, that, that's a kind of young thing as well. Um, but that's that's something I'm really aware of as well as I think it's something to kind of be avoided as well. So so how do we get the music more into the general community and out of academia? Well, I think the thing is, is that we have to take risks. I mean, you know, thinking about, um, you know, cuckoo. I mean, I, I love the fact that I can play a Bach sonata and, and, you know, promoters will like that because I always think with concerts, Jared, make sure you play stuff that they know. Come on, you know, um, you know, uh, we need to make sure a couple of well-known pieces, Jared, a couple of well you know, it's always that. So I'm always happy to do those pieces. You know, I love lots of transcriptions and, and they can sound amazing on the, on the, the saxophone. Uh, and then I like in the middle of it playing something contemporary because once you've got an audience, in, you know, if you perform strongly enough, you've got them sort of in the palm of your hands, then they're, they're, they're ready to take something, whatever, something new. Um, and afterwards, I remember once playing the De Crux Sonata at a concert, and someone came up, came up to me afterwards, and they said, that was such a revelation. I didn't know her music. And, um, and it was just an amazing experience where they said that was the, for me, that was the highlight of the concert because I, I discovered something magical and, and new. And, you know, that's a really, really important kind of thing that we can, that we can do. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing, I mean, the, the saxophone is incredible, isn't it? You know, because where I work in Trinity, we've got this new project um, called Venus Blazing. And it's kind of trying to address the balance um, that, that there hasn't been enough focus on women composers and, and there's, there's been an imbalance about programming things. So we've taken a year where the challenge is 50% of all programs have to actually be split between uh, male female composers and and I thought well with the saxophone it was great for, for solo repertoire we're way ahead of the game because you know it's been so f- at a forefront to so many of the composers so many of our composers female composers you know you think about um, Paul Marie Scott Kosky and it goes on like that and it was great I, at a meeting I said well we've already got like we're well on our way um, with that and um, you know there's so many things about the saxophone that are unique and I think all these different, you know, it was always always different to where society's norms were. Um, if you think about its influence in jazz, all of those things. And I think these are things that saxophone players need to tap into. What makes a saxophone different? I sometimes wonder, in answer to your question, is that I'm not sure us constantly playing transcriptions 
is a way to get the saxophone into the general public because as amazing as it is playing Paganini on a saxophone, it is extraordinary. But, you know, one has to ask themselves, does it sound as good as a violin player playing the same music? I mean, you know, the back cello suite sounds beautiful on an alto saxophone, but can we seriously argue that in a concert series, having a world-class cellist play it, are they, are they going to be able to put those two performances on a par? You see, and the thing is, for us, what it has to be is that I love doing transcriptions and there are certain pieces that they can sound just as good. They sound not better, but they sound different. I think the key is when we do transcriptions, don't be better, be different. And if you add that, then it's valid. Uh, and that can be a, a place. Um, and the rest of it, but the thing that it's a no-brainer is that if you get quality new music that's been written for you, then you don't have to go through the justification. You know, um, Graham Fitkin's Hard Ferry, I've just been examining it at a couple of conservatoires, and I've been associated with that piece. Um, it was written for John Harl. I think, actually, when I first performed it with Graham, it, it, I think it was the premiere because no one had actually performed it at that stage. And it's an amazing experience, and it's great that, you know, 25 years on, young saxophone players are still playing that piece and getting really excited by it. And you see, when you, I've played that in the Wigmore Hall in London twice. People go bananas over that piece. And it's, it's just so beautifully written for the instrument. You know, Cuckoo Melbourne, I mean, they go down a storm with listeners. People like it. And there's no justification. It just is what it is because it is written for the instrument. And I think that's what we have to do. Just keep plugging away, you know, um, getting stuff written all the time in the hope that you're going to turn up your next Glazunov, you know, and I think that's the key for, for us is constantly uh, doing things um, because I have heard people do extraordinary things, you know, violin concertos played in the saxophone, but there's always that one bit that doesn't work. There's always that one bar and you go, Oh, I just no, you, it will never. It, well, why not? Well, because it wasn't written for the sax and it's very impressive. And I suppose my part of my nature is my whole life is being about sometimes about just that one bar. It's that one bar that you can't play. And if it's not possible, I sometimes wonder why you're playing the piece then, you know, uh, it, because there's something defining about, about that. Maybe it's maybe me, me being too narrow minded, but it's something that does strike me. You know, that the whole generic thing has to be possible for the whole narrative of the music to come across. Could you describe to me your typical day as a teacher? Well, I tend to do, I have very high sort of focus on energy levels. It's high sort of octane. I'm a very sort of, um, I'm not a driven person, but I have a lot of energy and blessed with a lot of energy. And so I do very intensive days there. Um, you know, and I'll just, and I, I, I sort of don't really like taking breaks. I like getting into a kind of flow. Um, so what I love about Trinity would be, I always do saxophone choir, which is just the best thing. I mean, they're fantastic students. They're hilarious. They're very funny. Um, and uh, thankfully, they, 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 they definitely don't take me too seriously, which is really important. Um, so we're all a team and it's great. The, the rehearsals are just such great fun. And, um, and it needs to be because a lot of the music is really demanding and they've got pressurized concerts. And when push comes to shove, I want them to have fun on the day and not be stressed about it. Um, a lot of one-to-one -one teaching. We do uh, group lessons, which are great fun. Um, and my favorite thing is we do faculty classes, which 
um, I sometimes take, but we generally get people from uh, outside. For example, this year, um, we've had lots of different people have done them. Joshua Hyde came in and did one. Jerome Laurent's done one. Um, we've had lots of people come in from the outside visiting, you know, uh, colleagues, people from the pop jazz world, everything. Um, people from uh, the West End come in and do these classes. But I like doing them every now and again. And uh, so I like this kind of difference um, because I'll do different things. Um, also, I, I examine. So like this week, I was in uh, as a generalist uh, for exams. So I was teaching the saxophone and I was also sitting on a jury of vocal exams, guitar exams and piano exams, which was absolutely fascinating because we do blind marking. And I know nothing about the guitar. And you're sitting with the professor from the Royal College and the chair. And you have to blame Mark what you think someone got. And and you get these little kicks where it won during the afternoon. I got a kind of feel of how, how, how the instrument works. And later in the afternoon, uh, I blame Mark bang on with the specialist. And you go, yes, that's, that's kind of nice. That's, I'm in the zone for that. So I love the, I mean, Trinity, they've helped me develop as a, just as a general musician. Um, there's a lovely atmosphere there. It's not competitive. It's it's all about developing your different strengths. And what I love about teaching there is that you know, when we start spotting that a student is more sort of comfortable with pop and jazz, that we, in lessons, the next year we will adjust their balance. Um, we share students. We, we don't really have any students uh, exclusively. So I work very closely with a colleague called Mel Henry and, uh, and we get on really well and we work as a team and we work also with a couple of the guys, Mick Foster and things from the jazz department and Martin speaking, and, and we share students with them as well. So if we see, I, I'm really always fascinated to see how students are developing because my thing is that the education system sometimes fails students when it's too narrow and the students end up jumping through hoops. And we should be we shouldn't be doing that. We, it's not about getting a first. It's not about passing your exams. They're there as challenges, but what we're there for is to monitor their development and see what direction they're developing in. And as soon as people start picking Hudson out of Phil Woods, and they start moving towards that type of repertoire, and they're playing, you know, some of the crossover things, Andy Scott, all these kind of great things. I start wondering, you know, maybe you're interested in improvising and all that. So I do a bit of improvising and I start, we start that as well. Um, and if I, I hear that they're more comfortable in that, then I will then start developing. So we get, you get a colleague involved the next year. And by the end, there's some students where I've ended up teaching them exclusively. And by the end, they're doing nearly all their lessons with the jazz teacher. And I'm only doing eight hours a year. And that's, that's how it works. Um, also, some of them double. They all sort of double, and sometimes as well, we, we then actually change the balance towards clarinet and flutes. It's it's just all, you know, we're there for the students, it's not the other way around. And that's kind of what's really important. That would be my typical day. It's a, a sort of standing from the outside in, just seeing how how are they getting along, what's, you know, what can we do more for them? And that's always the, what I love about working there, you know. How are you able to balance your teaching commitments with your touring and your practice and all of these other things? The hardest thing is getting practice in. Um, I mean, you know, what I try and do is get in and practice first. I have tried staying on. But you see, if you've been in doing all these different things, you're working eight, sometimes 10 hours, and you're doing all these different things, you know, 
also, I want to do is go to the pub. The idea of picking up a saxophone and actually practicing properly, um, psychologically as well, when you've been teaching your brain, because in a different space, it, in one respect, it sounds like you should be able to practice really well. But when you come to practice yourself and do it, it's a different thing. So I try and do that first. Um, I'm lucky that the conservatoires are very flexible, so we can take time off and all of that. So in this way, I, I work at the, the conservatoires. <laughs> Recently, Trinity, they said uh, to all the staff, can you just say what day you're going to be in? And everyone started laughing. I said, what? I said, what week? You know, what year? And I said, I won't actually, I won't actually know until a month before. And, you know, if I get some extra work comes in or something comes in at short notice, you know, I love the fact that nine times out of 10, I can say yes and just go and do it and adjust it. As long as it's not a commitment to a gig, um, you know, at Trinity, also work in Cardiff at the Royal Welch. If it's, if it's not one of those, then I can just change things. And, and the students are cool. They want us to be out doing things because they know that I'll, I'll bring back something cool. I'll either bring back a good anecdote, which is always like important. Um, and they like the fact I meet all their, their heroes as well, that kind of thing. And also bring back new music. So it's all, it all works sort of, you know, really nicely. It's, it's, it's not really uh, an issue. You know, I do think also, you know, with playing the saxophone, I mean, you know, you, I do little bits. I often go, my average thing is going away for five days to a week. Um, I, I try and avoid every now and again, I might do a two week tour. Um, but luckily I, I don't get, I, the bit I can't get involved. And in, I suppose it's the things I say, no, is a big commitment where you get involved in a project where you're going to be on tour the whole time because then it's just not going to happen. You know, those big, big shows and all those types of things, you know, I just couldn't do because um, you'd then be compromising what you're doing. And, you know, there are some, some teachers that they're, 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 they haven't got the balance right. And, and the students, they'll notice, they'll notice that you're not around, that you're not focused and they'll notice. So uh, I just don't go there. Now you've performed in something like 35 countries. I would imagine therefore that traveling and touring is a really important part of your music making. What is it about travel that you like so much and that you're drawn to? Oh, you've got me sus, Barry, haven't you? Uh, so <laughs> never thought of a career of a psychoanalyst, no? <laughs> I love it being a saxophone player. Yeah, no, that's that's my thing. You know, I kind of see life as a kind of journey. You can see my career as being a kind of journey. And even on a weekly basis, like last week I was in London for a bit and I and then I came, I came home. I always come home really late. Uh, you can get a late train. I sometimes get home at two in the morning or something like that. And then I get up the next morning, cycle to the station, hop on a train and head across to Cardiff, which takes three hours. And I sit in this lovely, beautiful train journey. It's not very fast, not very reliable. And it's perfect for me. And um, lovely views. And I travel down to Cardiff. And I say to the students, I, it's my, I call it my holiday job because it's so lovely down there. There's such a nice bunch. And, um, and I go down and do, well, I did seven hours yesterday, but quite often I do five, six hours, something like that get on the train and come home. And it's lovely, that idea of a, a journey. So I do that on a weekly basis. And then the, the travel to your other countries, well, it's just the people you meet um, because you, you experience countries in a real way. Um, for example, I was in turn in China with an orchestra and I met um, Tony Young, Tang Yang, from the Beijing Conservatory. I did a master class for him, then got him a ticket for the concert. I was just playing like, you know, the old castle from pictures. 
and Mazorsky. And afterwards, we went out to this local Chinese restaurant near my hotel. I had a fantastic meal and a lovely time and, you know, met some of the locals, that kind of stuff. I had a compete. And then later that evening, I went into the same place with some of the orchestra and got ripped off. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really funny experience because all of a sudden we were just being treated as it absolutely happened. You know, actually, I remember as that evening went on, the price of the beer got more, every round got more and more expensive. As they realized, all oh, they're getting more and more drunk, so the price went up, you know. And and that's sort of, we, we suddenly became tourists. And I, I, so I don't really like going on holiday as a tourist because the tourist experience generally is just getting ripped off for me. And I like the fact that you, you go to countries, but there'll be a connection there. I mean, my one of my favorite things is going to Portugal because, you know, um, initially with my ex-student, Enrique you know, uh, Portovedo, and then João Pedro Silva from the quartet. I mean, when you go to Port- Portugal and we, we go to Lisbon and I go out with João Pedro and we, we go out to these fantastic local restaurants or in Palmela and you meet meet all these people. And it's an amazing experience. It's a privilege to do these things. And that's a bit I love because you're getting to meet people in a real way. You know, you're not sort of this kind of walking wallet, which is, you know, how a lot of people are viewed when they go on holiday. It's a, you make a, you make a little, well, you take something away and you give something when you go to these places. Um, and it's that experience that I just adore. That's, and then you, you play music for them. And uh, I think when I play music from that country, it's really special. I really like premiering things. I always often bring things from that country to you there. And I like the combination of playing their music um, and also bringing stuff of my own. It's a kind of, I don't know, it's, it's like a kind of party where everyone brings something. It's like, you know, bringing a nice bottle of wine or something or someone brings some food. And it's all that bigger, you know, it's that bigger human experience. It's a true experience. And um, I think it's just, it just feels very real to me. And then it feels kind of valid. And that's why I love doing that so much. If you just had one piece of music that you could play, what piece would that be and why? Melbourne. <laughs> Seriously, your sonata. I'm not just saying this because it's you. Because you dedicated it to me and it's something close to me. And um, emotionally, I'm very attached to it. I'm a bit obsessed with it because it's nearly melted my little Mark VI. And, um, you know, and it's pushed that instrument to the absolute limit of what an old horn can do. Um, and I'm just sort of fascinated. Can I do that piece on an old saxophone. Um, and that's, so that's, that would be the piece. That's where I am. If you ask me next year, I might have a different piece, but that's where I am today. You know, it's funny. You said before that you were on holiday and you were practicing. And I just find with saxophone players, saxophone players go on holiday to practice <laughs> instead of, instead of sitting on the beach. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I did go to a jacuzzi later on that evening, have a few beers. It's yeah, it's the whole thing, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's very hard to stop, isn't it? I mean, I don't practice there every day. I mean, it's always, you know, it's, when I wake up, it's, it's one of the first things that be in my head. Where I mean, how am I going to get me? It's, um, I have a little to-do list. And if I look down my to-do list every single day, you know, it's all, I actually write down on my to-do list, practice. It's always, in, I'm looking May 31st, practice. May 28th, practice. Um, it's just always in there. And, um, you know, in the midst of everything that I have to do, it, it, the amount of times I actually write in, yeah, looking the 10th or the 5th, um, well, Paige Osher Hyde <laughs> for his class, sort out my timetable, sort out my parking permit, practice, 
you know, I actually write it in to remind myself that I have to do that. It's, you know, every day. Now, talking of practice, if you've just got one hour to practice, how would you spend your time? <laughs> just go slow. Yeah. Um, I do uh, all the time. I, I do laryngeal exercises, do Allard stuff. I do all that all the time. Um, you know, harmonics and the low notes, long notes. Um, and um, little studies. Uh, I love doing little easy furling, you know, just like the best. I don't do difficult studies. I think if why bother doing difficult studies, just play a piece of music. So furling and, you know, close a, but furling's my fave. I think they're the best studies that you can do on a saxophone. Do those. And then often I'll just play really slowly. Um, I'll have a crack at something and then I'll sit and play it at 50%. And just, I just try to find the green. It might be just being Irish. I'm just constantly trying to find the green. And that one hour, that's really important. Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone and why? Well, I'm, I'm of course, being from the UK, I'm biased. It'd be John Harrell. I think John um, had a massive influence. I, I wasn't with him for very long as a student, but, you know, just really influenced me with a different accent and just amazing pieces that, that he, he sort of did. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's really, I, I, I just find what he accomplished or he's still, I mean, it's not, it's not past tense of what he is accomplishing. Um, sort of really, sort of, it's very fresh and interesting and I'm very personal to him. Actually, some of the pieces, um, a lot of the stuff I don't play because it was actually so, stru- I mean, it, it struck me that get something that is really personal to you. That was, I think what I got from him and why I, I really went to, along my own path. Um, you know, I like, I've played the Nyman concert about 30 times, but you know, always in the back of my head is, is that it's an, or hard phrase, his piece, you know, these are his, his pieces that were all done for him. And that's, that's really something very important, you know, that, that you have stuff that you get associated with that's of a good quality. So that would be my answer to that. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make them? I think it's when we don't realize we're making mistakes that we're in trouble. Um, uh, of course, if you don't care about mistakes, that's the day to give up. Um, I don't worry about making mistakes because, of course, the great thing about making a mistake is that you realize it. And, you know, we're always doing our best, aren't we? I mean, when you practice, if you're not doing your best, just don't bother. So we're doing our best. And the the thing is, when you make a mistake, we're aware of it. I mean, the, the key is with mistakes is forgive yourself. It's, you know, I, I can't understand why people get so upset about mistakes. Um, I've just read a book called Do No Harm, and it's by a brain surgeon called Henry Marsh. And he was talking about making a tiny mistake, you know, when someone had an aneurysm or something like that, and you wreck a patient, you know, and he talks about, he, he wrote a book about all of his mistakes, and he became a world-class surgeon. But he said, you know, he was once visiting this home, and there was somebody in there completely paralyzed, and he went, I did that. You know, and I thought, that's real. And actually, what we do isn't as important as a bus driver. I had a bus driver came on one of my courses in Benzelow, and I said, you have a more important job than me because you've got the safety of all those people and their lives in your hand for what you do. It's a really important job. I just play a saxophone. If I make a mistake, nobody dies. Get over it. And, um, you know, it's the mistakes that I don't know I'm making. I mean, the one I love is that, you know, 20 years playing Creston first page. Oh, it is an A sharp. It's not an A. Everyone knows what I mean. You know, it's that moment and a student points at it. Jared, is that not an A sharp? <laughs> you know, you just, you know, you, it's when we're playing wrong notes. So I have actually learned to, from Daniel Barnborn, 
the conductor, I've learned that when you practice, the way to spot mistakes is, you know, the way I talk about my darn breaking everything down and you must look at the music. When you look at the notes, look at the music as if for the first time. And if you can do that, you'll spot your mistakes. The problem is what we do is we look at music and we go, oh yeah, I know how that, that goes. I know what I have to do. That's when we're making a mistake because we're assuming we know what's going on. So, so I get, I, I got, I get to spot mistakes because I look at the music, I focus on the notes and I go, right. I say to a student, play that bar, just look at the notes. Are you, what percentage are you at? And if they don't say a hundred percent, I go, why? And they, they never ever say a hundred percent and they've actually played it perfectly. And I said, why is it not a hundred percent? And he said, I never looked at it like that. They just assumed. And that's how they spot mistakes. So, and uh, that's very, very important, I think. But, you know, the mistakes, you know, get over it. I mean, it's just music and it's just sound and air. It it doesn't really matter. You know, I think we get too head up over it. And and whatever you do, don't attach your self-esteem to a mistake. You you suddenly don't become a bad human being just because you've dropped a note on Cuckoo. You know, forget it. Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? That's a really interesting question. Um, oh, Yeah. I know what no one. I I don't know anybody who agrees with my interpretation of Glazunov because I think everyone's got it wrong. <laughs> you know, at the top of the second page of of, of Glazunov, actually, it's it's only the top of the the, the Glazunov in the Leduc version. Well, it's Mark Scherzando, right? And I think a lot of Glazunov is playful. I mean, what's going? I mean, you know, he writes. I think it's like Allegro Moderato, but so he, said, he wants it to flow. And like the amount of times I hear glass enough and it sounds like, da, 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 da. oh, give me a break. We're going to have a funeral march for the next 13 minutes. Where's the bar? And then you get to the Scarzando bit. I mean, I think glass enough has to move. It's, it's, it's generic. It's rhapsodic. It's melancholic. It's autumnal. And when you get to the Scarzando bit, Everyone plays it, da, 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 and then they start pulling it around. Then they get to the semiquavers and, and they go, oh, I've top of the page, Marcia Mule, Etude, and they do it exactly in time. But if you look at the music, it's still part of the Scarzando. It's not meant to, I don't believe it's meant to be um, played exactly in time because if you look at the score, it's not until later on that he actually marks the crotch tempo accelerando, I think up to crotch is 120. So whenever I play it, I always think of the Russian, but so I, I've done it with orchestra and I get them to go like that. And I do it like a kind of Russian folk dance. And I, I've done this in, um, I've done it in a couple of conservatories. I remember doing it in Belgium. I remember doing it in Vienna. And they said, you're just wrong. <laughs> and I said, you're just all following the party line. You're, you're just doing it the way Mule did it and everyone else, you know, everyone, you know, um, I'd be interested in it. And that's what, what people think. But, you know, Glasnost's amazing. And I think that how can we turn out so many recordings that sound the same? What's going on? Why, why is everyone playing it? It's like it's the holy grail of the, the saxophone. So it's the thing that I think people don't agree with is my, anytime I've played my interpretation, it really gets hotted up towards the end. And, you know, I think bits of glass enough, if you get the tempo wrong, it's really boring. I mean, that middle section, and I just sort of glaze over when people get the tempo too slow. So I've done it with orchestra. The last two pages, everything's pushing really towards the last chord. So I really get, I move it on and, um, and it's, it's great fun. And, uh, and that's how I play it. And most, most saxophone players uh, do like it and I don't care. <laughs> now, 
What's the most important thing that you do right before a performance, before you're walking onto stage? What do you do that makes you feel good in a performance? I'm really antisocial. I'm a very sociable person, but uh, the first key member is, uh, the, the first key point for me is keep any family members away from me. My family you know, don't, don't approach me before a concert because I get distracted. And I've had a couple of concerts where I've had chats with people just before I walked on stage and I've walked on stage and not been focused. So my key is to ground myself. I do, um, you probably don't know this, but I'm quite a relaxed person, but part of my psyche, I had panic attacks for like, I don't know, 50 years, maybe well, nearly like all the time and really weird, but, but I didn't get them when I performed. I didn't really get nervous. And uh, so I learned how to ground, how to deal with them uh, was to ground myself. And um, so I use sort of grounding techniques and, um, and it's really important for me. So I, I just sort of uh, sit, I focus in the room that I'm in and what I try and do, and actually anyone who suffers from nerves, panic attacks, anything like that, that blowing a brown paper bag and gr- leaving, if you can put yourself in the moment, in the moment in life where you're at, you'll, you'll stop them. And the key about performing is we get nervous. That's my he- headphones going a bit weird. I think, did you hear a noise? Um, Okay, but the key is to ground yourself. And what I do is try and stay in the moment. Um, so I look around the room, I look at something, I look at a clock, and I just just stop thinking about anything else and just look about the room, put my feet on the floor. Then I start breathing in and out and listening to my breath. And then I start locking in my body and go, how do I feel? Do I feel nerves? Do I feel pain? Do I feel stress? Where about my body is it? And I look at it. I try and feel where my body it is. And then I, I look at it and I go, why is that? And you'd be amazed that when you have pain or stress or something and you, you do that in the moment, that, that it sort of dissipates. There's, there's a thing about nerves is that we, imp- we have a choice. I say to students, we have a choice, you know. I mean, emotions are there before we perform, but we have a choice how we react to it. We, we don't have to go with it. We don't have to go with the fear. And I, I just look at it in the eye and I think we have to be courageous like that. And like most fears, when you look at them, they actually dissipate into thin air because it's just a lot of the time it's just our imagination. And if there is that bar that I'm nervous about, I go, oh, that's one bar. Don't worry about it. Just get over it, you know. And I I ground myself and the key about music, the beautiful and the reason why maybe music has been the soundtrack of my life is that when you play a piece of music, the only way you can play it is not in the past or not in the future. You have to be in the moment of that very note, that semiquaver. You have to play that one before you play the next one. And when you really get locked into that, then you're really doing something. You're really grounded and you've got a chance of expressing it. So that's my constant goal is to stay in the moment. And because of my kind of psyche, it's really important for my my well-being, actually, my mindfulness, those bits of, of life, so that what I try and do is try not to make the performance of my life too separate. I don't like, I, I had a lot of boom and bust and it was really bad for me. It was really unhealthy for me. You know, the boom and bust of pieces. And I remember once coming off the stage, I had done panic, Harrison and Burt Whistles in Germany. And I'd been so psyched up for the gig and I walked off stage and went, was that it? You know, I, was, I had this massive flat line, this massive kind of, you know, like a depression. And I thought, you know, I can't live like this. I can't have these ups and downs. I need to make, the performance of my life much more a contour, uh, and that's that's what I that's my key before any any performance, and and they're all treated the same. It's I don't prioritize. It's just the next gig, whatever it is. And that's how I do it. With hindsight, 
Could you give your younger self a piece of advice that would have benefited your development looking back? No, I just thought, well done, son. <laughs> I, I, I've no regret. I have no regrets. Um, I wouldn't have done it any different way. Um, I'm really happy with how I went. It was so, um, it was so unstructured. Uh, it was, it was so slightly chaotic. It was so sort of piecemeal. It was great. It just had, had these very diverse influences and I just went with my instinct at one time and yeah, you know, I just, I'll go to Chicago. All right, I'll do that. You know, and actually I never answered that question because the thing about travel, by the way, about going to uh, a country like Chicago, it changed my life because just being there, getting to meet all the Irish out there and, and all, I've still got friendships from that and, and getting to an amazing city. It was like such an eye opener to the big, there's a big world out there. That's the thing. It gets you out of your tiny little conservatory and all the tiny little place and the small mindedness that can happen and opens your head and, and, and body and spirit to the world. And, you know, that's, that's what really matters. What are some of the changes that you've seen in the saxophone world during your career? And what are some of the things that actually haven't changed that you thought might have changed? In the UK, the biggest change has been the exponential growth of the saxophone. In my second year at the RNCM in Manchester, I was the only saxophonist. The next year, I was really lucky because the guys from the Apollo Quartet came in and, and suddenly I had some mates. Uh, and they were, really, they were really good as well. And it was great to have that energy. But, you know, now in Manchester, you know, it's really sort of very healthy, big saxophone department. And um, in Trinity, you know, we have about 12 students. All the conservatoires have between, you know, academy is much smaller, but most of the conservatoires have between 12 and sometimes more students. And it's really the, the exponential growth. The technical level is massive. It's huge how that's developed. The repertoire's de developed massively. Um the, the one thing that hasn't changed is the fact that you have a human being blowing down a conical tube with a vibrating reed. That's the one thing that hasn't changed. And when I was in my early 20s, my first teaching job, I, I put together an embouchure workout, partly influenced by all my teachers who all influenced me, Joe Allard, Saxtet, the quartet I was in as well. We, we did stuff. And I just put it all together for the students. And that was over 25 years ago, and I still use the exact same thing. Nothing's changed. I mean, it's a bit more sophisticated. The order of things has changed, but the basic concepts, they haven't changed. And I just kind of think that will never change, you know, human beings and how the saxophone works. That's the bit. We, we, we have to come to terms with that. It just is what it is. Where can people find more about your activities? Are you, are you up to date on your website? Do you like social media? What's your, your choice for keeping people informed? I have um, a Facebook uh, page, Sax, 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 um, like a fan page. Um, I do have a website, but I very rarely update that because um, they're, they're sort of becoming defunct, really, because um, social media is, is a way forward for me. Um, I use Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. They're nowhere near as interesting, I think, for me. I think there's something about Facebook that is very of the moment, um, it's also very, it really suits me because it's really informal, you know, and I like the fact that, you know, this is a typical Facebook experience. I was doing the Glasnoff for Radio 3 with an orchestra and I, I put all the details on Facebook, you know, a couple of likes, you know, whatever. And then on the morning of the gig, I 
my hotel had an automatic pancake maker. I went, wow, this is like amazing. And I took a picture of the pancake coming out of the automatic pancake machine, you know, a hundred likes instantly. I mean, that's what I love about Facebook. Something completely inane. And they go, okay, it's doing, yeah, you did a good glass enough, but but what what about those pancakes? (laughs) That's what I love. I love that, that, you know, lest we take ourselves too seriously. That's what I like about it. You know, we... um, you know, the, the key is don't take it too seriously. It's, just, you know, we're, we're blessed to do what we do. We're lucky to do what we do. You have a job that we enjoy. And, you know, if you're getting depressed and worried about it, there's always the pancakes. Now, my final question for today, you've already made such a, a great, incredible contribution to the saxophone. What do you see for yourself in the coming decades? Oh, I've got so much to do. Um, I think my main thing is sopranino. Um my one of my clarinet teachers, Alan Hacker, uh, sadly died. Just before he died, uh, he gave me a Selmer Series Two Sopranino, a beautiful gift. And I went to see him, and I brought him some. I love cooking, and I made him some homemade pesto. I brought him some pesto, and he gave me a Selmer saxophone. And I've got this little Sopranino, and I blew it. And he said, "I've had this for you know my whole thirty years." And I blew it. And he went, "No one's ever made it sound like that. You should have it." And when he died, I went to his funeral and his widow, Margaret, said, I want you to play that little instrument in his honor. And I replied, he always did have a weird sense of humor. And um, so I'm obsessed with the sopranino. I think it's I think it's the most magic of all the saxophones. I think it's an incredible instrument. Um, not many people play it well. And it's it's an you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not in tune, but it's perfectly in tune. You can play it perfectly in tune because you can play it perfectly out of tune. So, you know, it's yin and yang. So it, it's, it's, I think my next recording, I'm sort of, you know, um, I've got a really nice record company who, who give me years to make albums and, and I need it. I, I'm not pushed. I just make albums when I'm ready. So, you know, I'm exploring repertoire for that. And so I need to do that. I also need to record um, a lot of the pieces, like I haven't recorded Gary Carpenter's Sonata. I haven't recorded well Melbourne that was written, that was dedicated by what I haven't recorded uh, Nigel Wood's Cries of the Center. There's all these pieces that are I think are, are becoming important in the saxophone repertoire, and I haven't put my stamp on them because you know, especially with Gary Carpenter because it was written for me. And I thought I need to record that just so people know what I think about it, what where where I'm coming from. And I think I need to do an album of all my pieces that were all my pieces. Um, I started composing. Um, I started working with loop stations. And actually at the World Congress, I'm playing one of my own pieces based on a poem by Seamus Heaney. So I'd like to compose more. Um, uh, I'd like to learn to double tongue. I can do everything else, but I can't double tongue. My flutter tongue's a bit dodgy. So I'd like to learn to double tongue um, and do it really well. Um, so, but, but, but I can single tongue so fast that I haven't actually found a piece that I don't need double tongue in, but I'd, I'd do that. And then I might find something. Uh, that's a kind of interesting little geeky. That's my geek thing. Um, so uh, any tips, please send me any information to sex.com. Uh, so that's interesting. So yeah, I think there's, there's still, you know, that's, that's what I've got to do as a player. Well, it's, it's, it's a privilege to hear your enthusiasm. For your playing i'm still that child and i'm still that kid in a sweet shop you know <laughs> well i think that level of uh love of what you do is very evident in the way that you perform and i've no doubt that explains why you always have an audience when you play oh thank you 
So, Jared, thanks for your time this morning and talking with me. And I look forward to seeing you in, in three weeks' time at the World Saxophone Congress. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Bye. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show.